the boards in front of the 200, Dr. Grayson, Sedestin are challenging, and better loosen up on the extreme outside, Sedestin and Benedict have come away, they're fighting it out, better loosen up on the extreme outside is roaring clear, and better loosen up wins the Sajano. Sedestin second. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Pride's Easy Feed. Many Australian trainers have tried their horses on Pride's Racing Cube and have given the product a tick of approval. These small but powerful extruded cubes provide the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses finish their races off while promoting gut health. Racing Cube set recipe formulation means the same premium quality proteins and essential amino acids are used in every batch produced. Racing Cube's profile and digestibility allows you to feed approximately two to three kilos less per day than similar raw grain rations. It's salt-free to help reduce irritation if you've got a horse prone to stomach ulcers. Pride's Racing Cube is available in the popular 25 kilo bag, in bulk bags, or straight into the silo if you prefer, giving you quality equine nutrition at an economical price. Talk to your local rep about Racing Cube, another winner from the Pride's Easy Feed Stable. Trainers of thoroughbreds, standard breads, and performance horses are giving it the thumbs up all around the nation. It's hard to believe John Powell spent 25 of his 37 years as a jockey out of Australia. He made his mark in Macau, Malaysia and Mauritius before becoming stable jockey for Don Bartschiger in Singapore in 2005. And that was a partnership that would last right up to his retirement two years ago. Despite an unrelenting battle with weight, John Powell rode about 1,400 winners in five jurisdictions. He won numerous major races in Singapore, including four Group 1s. He wasn't able to win a Group 1 at home in Australia, but his stakes wins were numerous, one of them being a surround stakes on staging when the race was still a Group 2. Early in 2020, John went for the routine medical clearance required for the renewal of his riding licence. And during this examination, a lump was discovered on his neck, originally thought to be a cyst. The jockey was devastated when further scans revealed a thyroid cancer. And all of this happened at the time of the COVID border closures. After a harrowing delay, John eventually underwent successful surgery in Sydney, while at the same time, the cyst was found to be benign. The thyroid complications wreaked havoc with his weight, and by the time he was ready to resume in Singapore, he was struggling to ride much under 58 or 59 kilos. He announced his retirement in 2021 and returned to Australia, where he's now living on the Gold Coast. In recent months, he's been alongside Gary Cleesey on Sky Thoroughbred Central's coverage of race meetings in northern New South Wales. Let's welcome to the podcast a former jockey of immense talent, John Powell. Great to chat, John. Thanks for joining us, mate. Good morning, good afternoon, John, and great to hear your voice after so many years. It's uh, great to be having a chat with you. Your opportunity with Sky Racing 
came up when Priscilla Looker began long-term maternity leave. Gary Clichy yeah. recommended you for the job and he became your tutor. You've got a very good teacher. Yeah, Gary's uh, been brilliant for me. Um, I was actually still working and am still working for Racing New South Wales, um, mentoring the Northern Rivers apprentices with Corey Brown. Mm. And while I was at one of the race meetings, uh, Gary came up to me and um, said, would I be interested in helping out why Priscilla's on maternity leave? And uh, I had no experience in in uh, presenting or anything like that. So mm. uh, for a few weeks, uh, I went down to Gary's place every Wednesday and we'd done a few mock interviews. And then he thought I was ready to, um, to go on to uh, do the, the Sky meeting. And uh, that's where it all started. And it's been really good fun since. Mm. He was a pretty handy jockey himself, you know, John. Yeah, um, I, I didn't have much to do with the northern New South Wales region, but I think he was quite a dominant jockey around uh, the Grafton, Balanacoffs Harbour area for many, many years. And um, I actually didn't recall riding with him, um, but um, he's a champion bloke to work with. He certainly is. You know, he won two NRRA jockeys premierships in his day. Did he? Uh, yeah, he's got a very good name around the Northern Rivers and uh, he's um, a, a very good boss for all of us. I think he's had uh, myself, uh, Priscilla, Melinda Turner and also the, the new girl now, Belinda Hodder, mm. all under his wing. And I, I think there's many more that I haven't named that he's um, educated on Sky Channel. Yeah. You seem to concentrate on the characteristics of horses and the tactics yes. employed by jockeys during the running of races. Well, John, I when I first started, I spoke to um, Haley, who was originally at Sky Channel, and um, I, I when Gary put my name forward, I, I said to Haley, "Look, I, I don't have any presenting skills of, at all. I can't talk like these form experts. Um, I haven't got a memory that can store a lot of information." Um, about stuff like that and she said johnny if we wanted that we would employ that we want someone that can talk like a jockey and and give the inside feedback and what you think of horses actions and uh, position in running and stuff like that so um so that's how it started from there john i think we'll go right back to the start of your diversified career you grew up in campbelltown and you were known to a man called fred beetzel who'd worked for John Page some years earlier. John, by this time, was assisting his wife, Helen, who was training at Warwick Farm. Now, you were built like a potential jockey, so Fred Beetzel suggested you should make yourself known to Helen Page. I think you called in there. Yes, that's correct, John. I was uh, still at school. I think Fred Beetzel, he uh, lived around the corner from... uh, us at Campbelltown, and um, I was always going to be a plasterer like my dad and my dad's brothers. It was a family business. So during school, I wasn't really concentrating on uh, education that much because I was always going to be a plasterer. Then um, then the opportunity come to be a jockey, and I had no interest in horse ra- racing or horse riding. I'd never been on a horse before. And so I, my dad kind of said, this would be good life for you if you can make it as a jockey. So I went down to Warwick Farm and my dad dropped me down there and um, I was on a Saturday morning and I had a look at the horses and it was a bit intimidating, of course. 
And then I remember Helen and John Page said, uh, Johnny, while you're here, you may as well come to the races at Warwick Farm on the Saturday meeting. Mm. So I, um, I spent the day at Warwick Farm races. And uh, when I walked out with Helen and John after the last race, I seen all the jockeys walking to their cars and they all had Mercedes Benz and BMWs <laughs> and they had beautiful looking wives. And I thought, <laughs> okay, that could be me in five years' time. <laughs> oh, golly, good story. Your apprenticeship began in 1984 and you took to it like a duck to water. It was a trainer called Frank Bacon who gave you your very first race ride on the little turning track at Bega. Your dad drove you all the way down the coast and to your delight, you ran second. Yeah, Fred Beadle, he was a character and he... he um he was always a funny guy. I remember that. He always joked around and um, he took um, – yeah, he gave me my first ride. I was on a horse called Grand Josephine um, at, at Bega and um, my dad drove me down there. I think it was a three or four, maybe a five-hour drive down there and I think I had two or three rides on the day and uh, the race went that fast for me. I didn't know what had happened. I ended up running second. Mm. And, um, yeah, it was a good experience and uh, I was ever so grateful for Frank for giving me my first ride. Your first winner was a horse called Warmington Dip, trained by Helen Page at Gosford. Now, by your own admission, it wasn't a pretty ride. In fact, you were almost in the Narara River coming around <laughs> the home turn. <laughs> Warmington Dip must have had a bit on him, John. Well, I, I think that was might have been the only race you ever won, John. And I, I remember I drew the outside alley in a 1,200 metre at Gosford. And um, I jumped out of the gates and I think I was four or five wide the trip. Then I took off at the 600 and went all the, the way around them. And um, to her credit, I think she knew that she had uh, a young apprentice on that didn't know what he was doing. And she kept on uh, finding the line and she got up and won by her head. And, uh, yeah, that was my very first winner. And um, <laughs> I remember coming back to scale and I had the long fringe. It was under my skull cap. And um, Johnny Haig was the chief steward then. And when I got on the scales, he said, son, he said, I want you to get that haircut. I don't want you to come back up here with that hair long like that. So, <laughs> Did he? John Hayes, <laughs> so I remember him well. Yeah. Your first city winner was a grey horse called Salesforce, trained by Helen Page. It was in August 1987. The race was at Canterbury, and I think Salesforce was a front runner. He was a good kid's horse, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He, he was a, a lovely horse too. And I think um, he also provided Shane Edmonds, my uh, other apprentice, our other apprentice in the stable with his, one of his first winners as well. But he was a, a kind of a push button horse. He would just jump out and go to the front and um, that's what he done. I think it was, the uh, might've been a 1550 at Canterbury or something like that the mm. day he won. And um, I just went to the front on him and he, he done the rest for me, John. Yeah. Big thrill. The guy yeah, Walter yeah. trained Prince Invader, John. He was a good horse to you early days. You won five races on Prince Invader, including one at Randwick, and I think he won three straight with you on board at one stage. Yeah, he was a really good horse for me, Prince Invader, especially as an apprentice. And Guy Walter, um, he used to put us apprentices on a lot when we were there at Warwick Farm and he, you know, we would ride a few bad and he, would, he wouldn't get upset. He, he was kind of a very good um, trainer to ride for guy and um, 
I had a lot of success for Guy over the years, and um, but he provided me with that horse, and he stuck with me, um, and he gave me a lot, a lot of good rides, Guy Water, and uh, he was a good horse to me, Prince of Ada. Like you said, I won the five races on him, and um, yeah, he was a good, he was very good to me. There was a brilliant two-year-old in Sydney in the late 80s and early 90s by the name of Show County. Now, he was ridden in 26 of his 27 starts by Brian Wood. He contested the up-and-coming stakes at Warwick Farm one day during a jockey strike. Every runner on the day was ridden by an apprentice and young Johnny Powell got the ride on Show County. What do you remember of it? Yeah, he was a brilliant little horse, Show County, and um, that's right there. I remember now that all the jockeys were on strike and uh, I think the jockeys flew in, flew in from Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, oh, sorry, Melbourne, Brisbane and uh, mm. a few other states to fill up that meeting at Warwick Farm that day and uh, we were only second and third year apprentices and we were riding the best group horses in Australia at that time and um, – mm. Looking back on it now, the the, the uh, privilege to actually get on those horses at that time was um, was was remarkable, really. And um, you know, I was I was the only one that got to ride Show County outside of Brian Wood, and I I struck him on a wet track, and he never performed on a wet track. No. Um, so so uh, I was a bit unlucky that day. He ran in a golden slipper uh, on a wet track, led as he usually did. And he just scrambled in the going. You could see halfway down the straight, he was very uncomfortable. I think he still ran fourth in that slipper, won by Kortzer. Yes, correct. And he, he was a really stocky little horse, John. He was quite thick and he had a really nice neck on him. Mm. You, you knew you were on like a fast horse when you got on his back and um, – um, I still have a photo of him. I got to the photographer, I think it could have been Steve Hart or one of the other guys, to mm, um, mm. take a photo of him canning to the barriers, and I still have that photo with me now. Perhaps your favourite track as an apprentice was Kembla Grange, where you yes. never stop riding winners there for a while. In fact, you won a Kembla Apprentices Premiership. Yeah, Kembla was really good to me. I kind of grew up, uh, like I say, with Warwick Farm and Rodney Quinn, Tony Marnie, even Brian Wood. Um, that was our kind of Saturday track where we all used to go and ride and we all used to sweat together in the sauna at Warwick Farm to lose the weight for that race meeting. And uh, mm. Rodney Quinn and Tony Marnie were quite good mentors for me. And I, I kind of – Rodney helped me out a lot when I was apprenticed with my riding because Rodney was one of those patient jockeys and um, – he taught me to ride Kembla, how to ride it, how to wait. And um, so I had a lot of success at uh, Kembla and a lot of it's got to do with Rodney Quinn. Yeah, good to hear. Your yeah. well-documented weight issues surfaced pretty early in your career and it wasn't long before you started using those horrible, dangerous diuretics which simply helped reduce the fluid content of the body. Many jockeys use them rather than tolerate the rigours of the sauna. It was so easy, wasn't it, on race day to swallow a couple of those pills, but long-term, John, they were harmful. Yeah, John, that was kind of um, like when you were an apprentice and you were, you were riding track work, you would come home, you would brush the horses and do your uh, stable duties. Then you'd have to jump on the float and go to the race meeting. You didn't have much time to go to saunas before a race meeting. So yeah. that was the easy way out for us at that time. Yeah. And um, eventually they just um, – they, they destroy your your body and um, – 
you know, I, I took them for many, many, many years. And uh, that, they, the, the Lasix tablets they were, and uh, as they were formerly known as uh, piss pills, we'd call them as jockeys, <laughs> then um, <laughs> yeah. you, you would take uh, one of them in the morning or two of them in the morning and uh, you'd lose one or two kilos, which was enough to get to the race. Bay. But I got to a stage where I was taking up to six and seven uh, tablets a morning to yeah. ride at the races. And I remember the last time I took them, I rode it now on the Monday to ride 56.5 kilos. Mm. Um, and I took six that morning. Then the Wednesday morning, I took another four to ride 47 at uh, Canterbury on the Wednesday. Mm. And um, after the race at Canterbury, I remember I couldn't even hold a knife or a fork to eat my food because all, all the cramps I used to get. Oh, and that was the last day I took him. Then, um, then I got on a worse tablet after that, John, and that was the the Duramine tablet, which a lot of the truck drivers used to use back in the old days to not fall asleep. Mm. And uh, they were like a, a speed type of tablet where they would make you go fast and you would sweat good in a sauna when you took these tablets. So oh, then yeah. I started on them and that was another 10 years of them. So eventually they all got barred, which was a great thing. Oh, a great thing. Uh, when the racing authorities barred them, wiped them yes. off the map. Uh, later in your career, you started to work it off. You you were running and walking and swimming, and didn't your health improve? Oh, it was much better then, John. I think uh, uh, the last time I took one of the, the Durumine tablets was in uh, Mauritius when I was over there riding around 1997 or 99. Mm. I think it was. And the chief steward come to me and uh, he, uh, he said, Johnny, are you on any of these tablets? And I said, yes, I'm on this one. He said, look, we're going to start testing for these now and you'll be suspended if you continue taking them. Mm. I said, look, well, you can't test me today because I'll be positive. Can mm. you give me a couple of weeks till it's out of my system then? So that was the last time I took them as well. Good on you. Um, then, then, then you've done things naturally and you um, went on the proper diets and I had Ron Johnson, the old um, – the dietitian, I come and work with him, and then uh, mm. I just learned how to manage my weight the proper way. Yeah, it was wonderful. You mentioned yeah. Mauritius, which has been a mecca for Australian jockeys over the years, a unique place, a tight-turning little track, ordinary horses and very animated crowds. They tell me if the punters there were not happy, jockeys would know about it. Yeah, they were quite a, a – um, it, it was a funny place. They used to call it Treasure Island back in the old days for jockeys. Um, <laughs> Did Because you, you, you arrived on the plane, wherever – what country you ever come from, and the customs knew who you were. You got shuffled through the customs pretty quickly. You didn't have to line up. And you were like a uh, – as say a Manchester United football player in the Mauritian Eyes. So everywhere you went, people would come up to you and, and, and actually made you feel like you were a superstar, but you weren't. <laughs> you were just yeah. a jockey. Goodness but man. racing for them was a very big thing. It was on the news every night. Um, it, yeah, it was it was their biggest um, kind of event each week at Mauritius. So it was it was a good experience. I assume a visiting jockey can make a pretty good living there because Australian riders were falling over themselves to get to Mauritius a few years ago. Shane Dye even had a stint there when his opportunities in Hong Kong started to drop off. Yeah, Shane, Shane done really well there. Um, they've got had a lot of good jockeys go there, John, even from South Africa, you know, Kevin Shea and Jeffrey Lloyd um, mm. all come and rode there. Um, 
it was it was a, a wonderful place in the sense that we only rode on a Saturday mm. and you only rode for your stable. So if your stable only had four runners, you only had four rides. Mm. And there was only about 26 race meetings there for the year. So it was you had a lot of time off and you would go to the five-star resorts at Mauritius and go to the beautiful beaches and and then they would pay you retainer, they would pay your house, they would pay your car and give you a salary plus your riding fees and percentages on top. It was kind of a it was kind of a, like a beautiful working holiday. Goodness me. I'd heard it was good. I didn't realise it was that good. Yeah, it was pretty good. And the uh, the Mauritian women were beautiful too, John, I'd let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you had a couple of years in Macau when racing was absolutely flying there. They tell me it's not going quite as well today, largely due to the ravages of COVID. I believe the horse population has really diminished. How did you get to Macau in 1993? Well, uh, actually, I remember my boss, Johnny Page, come to me and Mick Dittman actually was looking for or knew some owners in Singapore, I mean, in Macau that were looking for a, a stable jockey. So Mick asked Johnny Page, would I be interested? And uh, then Johnny Page come and asked me and I said, yeah, I, I'll have a look. So then I went and uh, met up with Mick and mm. he said, Johnny, look, this is a good opportunity for you to ride overseas and uh mick flew over with me and i met the trainer and the the uh, owners and that there so then i was a stable jockey for a trainer called yc chan mm. and uh so mick got me that job and um i was there for two years and it was a very very good experience i've met some very good uh world-class riders that come and rode there and i learned a lot in macau right now during that period you became friendly with a very good rider called Jose Corrales, who was instrumental in fine-tuning your style. What happened there? Yeah, well, uh, I got along well with Jose, and Jose was a Petamanian jockey, and um, so I used to go every week to the jockey club, and they had first time I'd ever seen one of those mechanical horses, John, and, and Jose got me on the horse, and he didn't like our Australian style. He didn't like our... Um, the, the the windmill whip as he called it and this jumping up and down on him um, he was all for the for the American style of riding which was low toes in the irons and uh, a different way of pushing the horses so he taught me that and I was there for weeks and weeks and weeks every weekend then I changed my riding style uh, in Macau and I brought that back to Sydney with me in about 1994. And I think it was myself and Danny Berridan was the only two jockeys at that time in Australia that were riding with our toes in the irons. And it really took off for me when I when I um, got back to Sydney. And I remember one of the managers, uh, which is now still a great friend of mine, Steve Halliwell, he, mm-hmm. picked, he spotted uh, how I was riding and, and uh, decided, asked if he could manage me. Then um, he took, he went out like a, a bull with horns and he rang every trainer and he got me in with Bart Cummings and um, mm. got me in with all the good horses and um, he done a great job managing me. But just the changing the toes and the irons, John, and, and a different style of pushing it, it just kind of went a different uh, line for me in my riding career. And now, of course, they're all doing it. Yeah, I remember Ray Murray, he um, uh, I still remember it. I was riding a horse at Warwick Farm called Montana Sands for Pat Webster. Mm, a little and, horse. 
The little horse, that's right. And yeah. I, I remember looming up, looming up about the 300 on him and Billy Aspros come beside me, come down the outside, and Billy was one of the old-style jockeys with the – the kicking and all that, and he kicked me foot out of the iron. I nearly fell off at the 300. <laughs> I, I hung on, and uh, the horse, he probably should have nearly won that day. Then uh, Ray Murray, he was kind of looking at sparring uh, all kind of not – he wasn't real happy with that, how riding with the toes in the irons, but mm. um, eventually it was okay, and that was the only time it ever happened to me. You mentioned you started to ride better class horses, and we're going to talk about that, John. After this break on our podcast, we'll be back with you in just a moment. There have been only six editions of the Everest, but the trivia buffs are already compiling records. For instance, Yes, Yes, Yes is the only end tyre to win so far. A total of 15 spots have been filled by mares, with not a single place-getter among them. Tulip and Hort Brion Her have been the best of the female performers, both finishing fifth in their respective years. Four mares ran in the first Everest, while three contested two later editions. Peter Snowden and Chris share training honours with two wins each, while Karen McAvoy dominates the jockeys. Not only has he ridden three of the six Everest winners, he's also the only jockey to have ridden in every one of them. Brenton Avdulla, Hugh Bowman and Tim Clark have been around in five, James McDonald, Tommy Berry and Nashra Willer in four each. Rachel King, who's been unplaced twice, is the only female jockey to ride in the race. Amazingly, Damien Oliver has had only one Everest ride. The great Ty England rode in the first two editions, finishing second on Trapeze Artist in 2018. Several horses competed more than once. Nature Strip is the top scorer with four attempts. Redzel, Santa Ana Lane, Trekking and Eduardo had three cracks at the big race, while Brave Smash Gitra and In Her Time competed twice. Three of the six Everests have been run on rain-affected tracks. Yes, 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 got a good three in 2019 and established a race and track record of 17.32. Only two overseas horses have arrived on the eve of the race. US Navy flag and 10 sovereigns from the O'Brien Yard and both finish well back. The youngest trainer to win the Everest is Clayton Douglas, who was just 27 when Giga Kick was successful last year. Year, the oldest is Les Bridge, who was 83 when Classic Legend won in 2020. That's a heck of a lot of trivia after just six years. How will it be in another six? My special guest is John Powell. I'd like to look at some of those really nice horses you talk about. I'll throw a few at you randomly. You had one race ride on Saintly. It was his second run back from a spell in the autumn of 96, in the Apollo Stakes, you ran second to Juggler and you think Darren Biedman got off saintly to ride Juggler that day. Yeah, I was very lucky. Um, I was doing a little bit of riding for Bart Cummings or Mr Cummings at that time, we would call him, and uh, um, Darren probably thought Juggler was a better ride um, at that time, so Darren jumped off the saintly to ride juggler, and he won on juggler, and I run second on saintly. And it's, I was a bit stiff there. Saintly never ever won second up in his life, and I'm riding second up. But I, to be fair, even if I did win on saintly that day, John uh, Darren would have been back on him after that. Yeah, around the same yeah. time, Bart put you on Dashing Eagle in the Group Three Furious Stakes. 
and you got the job done beating a good filly in a shirt of lash. Dashing Eagle was owned by the famous winemaker, Wolf Blash. Yeah, she was a she was a lovely, uh, big, big, strong horse. She was, and uh, she gave me. There was another group race I, I won at Randwick that day, and um, yeah, Bart was uh, very kind to me. And uh, yes, yeah, I, I can't. I, what, who did she beat that day, John? Was it Dayla or something? Was it? No, assertive lash. Assertive lash. So I think that was Gay Waterhouse's Chris Munts rider yeah. that day. I think correct. Um, yeah. So. Um, yeah, Bart put me on uh, quite a few good horses there, and uh, even with Dane Ripper, he put me on Dane Ripper, and mm. um, yeah, he was very, very kind to me, Bart. But she was a lovely, lovely mare, Dashing mm. Eagle. Now you were getting to Randwick a bit to ride work for Bart in that era. Yeah, so between um, well, Darren was our dominant jockey back in those days. Um, I think he won five or six premierships around that 2000 time mm. and um, Darren was the, the pinnacle of jockeys around that era and he was riding for Hawks and Bart both at the same time mm. and um, so I was doing a bit of track work for Johnny Hawks on a Tuesday, Thursday or a Tuesday, Saturday and I'd go out to Bart's on a Thursday morning at Randwick so I juggled up the two uh, trainers there and both of them were very very kind to me they give me a lot of good rides and a lot of nice horses uh, amongst those two stables and forever grateful for that you won a hawkesbury gold cup i recall on a horse called magic road for a lovely lady called kim craft who trained her horses at wyong he was a very very good horse and a prolific winner magic road yeah, he was. Um, he it was my first Hawkesbury Gold Cup ride, and uh, he he won the race for me. And I I vaguely remember John. I think um, there was a Sunday meeting prior to the Hawkesbury Gold Cup, and I had five rides that day. And I rode the five winners. Mm. Then I went to the next Hawkesbury meeting, which is a Gold Cup meeting, and I had four rides and rode three winners. So I rode eight winners out of the nine rides at Hawkesbury that mm. day. But um, yeah, he was a great horse, Magic Road, and uh, I. I Vaguely remember I, I had a nice run on him and he was, he was too strong at the line. Mm. You rode Adam about nine times early in his career for two city wins, including a stakes race. Adam was trained by Ray Brock. John, as you'd well recall, the horse would later win a Stratbroke and a George Main stakes. And at one stage... I think he was the only horse Ray Brock had in his stable at Newcastle. Yeah, Ray Brock was a lovely old man. Um, I think I won the Ming Dynasty on him at Randwick, John, if I can remember. Um, mm. But he used to be a, a nice horse. He'd, he'd jump out and be up on the speed. And uh, he, he wasn't a big horse, but he had a very big heart. And I think, uh, it, like you said, he's got a good record. He won the Stradbroke. Um, yeah, he was, he was a nice little horse, actually. Adam was by Rubiton, the Cox Plate yep. winner, and so was a lovely two-year-old filly you got to ride in 1998 by the name of Rubicall for Canterbury trainer John Wenman. You won three straight on Rubicall, including the Sweet Embrace Stakes, and she looked a realistic chance in the Golden Slipper. But she had her chances ruined when a horse called Shavog absolutely poleaxed her in, a, in the home straight. How were you going at the time of the impact? 
Yeah, I was going okay. I, I, I remember I was back on the one off the fence and um, Mick was on my inside and uh, Mick uh, was looking to – he was going probably a little fraction better than me at the time and he edged off the fence and uh, when he got to the outside, I, I clipped heels and went down. I'm not saying I would have won the Golden Slipper that day, John. Uh, I, I reckon I was a chance of running a place though and mm. uh, well, everything went uh, downhill when I clipped the heels and she nearly went down and, um, yeah, poor old Johnny Wenman and Ruby Call. Yeah. That was um, – that was it for them. That was a race over there. By an amazing coincidence, you were riding another smart two-year-old filly at the same time for Clary Connors. Her name was Marty's Magic. You actually won the Magic Night Stakes on Marty's Magic, so I presume you had the pick of the two in the Golden Slipper. Yeah, it was quite a funny time. I think I rode... Um I think it was the year I rode. I had I rode Dane Ripper in a thousand meter race at Warwick Farm. Then she went into the the slipper that time as well. Then I won on Ruby Call, uh, so that was my first um, horse that was going into the slipper. So I confirmed the ride straight away on Ruby Call because I, I was I never had a ride in the Golden Slipper before, so I was guaranteed I was going to ride Ruby Call. Then I rode Marty's Magic and won the Sweet Race on her. Then I rode Glamis. I think she ran third. And all these horses went into the Golden Slipper. And I'll, mm. I'll never forget these, John. Shane Dye was offered the ride on Prow. Yes, who won the race. Yeah, so on the Sunday night, Shane got off Prow to ride, I think it was one of Gay Waterhouses. Mm. And Clary asked me, could I ride Prowl in the Golden Slipper? And I said, look, I've already been confirmed for Rubicor. Like, I, I've got to stick with Rubicor because I didn't want to let Johnny Winman down. And uh, so I was offered Prowl, Glamis, Marty's Magic and Rubicor all in the one year. So um, <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> amazing, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we, anyway, that's, that's the history. And, um, mm. yeah, so that's what happened that time. And it's now history that Chris Munch, picked up the ride on Prowl, who sat outside the leader. And yep. uh, I remember Chris telling me once, he said, I couldn't believe I could just park outside the leader and get there so easily, uh, which enabled Prowl to go on and win the race. Well, he was a good two-year-old, he was a good two-year-old trainer, Clary Connors. I'd done a little bit of riding for Clary, a lot of riding for Clary, even his old father, uh, old senior Clary Connors. I had a good relationship with uh, senior mm. uh, Connors there. And uh, but Clary, well, he won with tears, he won with burst, prowl. He was he was the two-year-old trainer at that time, wasn't he? Mm. John, I don't know if you've caught up with this yet, but I read with great interest and great delight the other day that Clary Connors Jr is to be inducted into the Australian Racing Hall of Fame in November in Perth at a special function. And uh, I'd like to join all of those in racing who extend their sincere congratulations to a thoroughly deserving inductee. Yeah, he deserves it, Clary. He was, he was, um, I have nothing but great words to speak to Clary. He was very good to me when I was a kid, um, an apprentice at Warwick Farm. He always gives us rides. He was, he was tough when you rode him badly. He, he let you know about it, but, um, uh, nevertheless, he always gave us a chance. And even when I was a jockey doing quite well in Sydney at the time, he, he you know, he put me on and, um, I'm, you know, forever grateful for Clary for that. I only spoke to him probably three or four weeks ago. Uh, he, he rang me about a horse I, um, was talking about on Sky Channel to see if it was up for sale. So Clary was in uh, Clary and Marie are both in uh, in uh, good ways. Yeah, that's good. Great news. Wonderful couple. 
John, you've mentioned Dane Ripper a couple of times already. You rode her only once in a race, and that was a two-year-old event at Warwick Farm. You ran fourth. Did she feel on that day that she was destined for Group 1 glory down the track? What a bonnie mare. Yeah, she was really she really a thick-set little filly uh, uh, at that time, and I, I give her a sore back. I rode her terrible. Um, <laughs> I, I, I tried to sit, yeah, I tried to sit one out, one back, and when Darren – Darren was on another horse, and when he um, – yeah, I tried to sit up outside the leader, actually, and Darren would box seated behind the leader, and as I moved up to sit outside the leader, Darren pushed out and put me three deep outside mm-hmm. the leader, so it was a – it was a you know, I never saw back that day, and uh, she still uh, run well. I think the next year she came out and won the Cox Plate, so um, – Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think she ran third in the slipper. Um yeah, but she was she was a man, a filly that was always going to look for growl later on, and and it showed when she won the Cox Plate. Yeah, and throw in a Stradbroke just for good measure. Yes, yeah. Well, oh. yeah, my mates were throwing another one as well. <laughs> oh, gee, she was a good mare. And she, she you, was. you mentioned her strength of confirmation. What an impressive hind quarter she had. She was massive behind the saddle. Yeah, when I used to, like, uh, Johnny Hawks and Bart Cummings, when you rode their horses, um, track work, even in trials and all that, some of the size of their horses, John, and how strong they were, um, it was a really good education to actually feel what good horses felt like. So um, it was a good learning career down the track that when a trainer asks you, you know, what do you think of the horse when you jump on him a track where you could give a good good summarisation of what it Mm. felt like then, you know what I mean? Mm, Exactly. You also learn what an ordinary one feels like. <laughs> Plenty of them, John. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, you had two unplaced rides on a wonderful mare called Gold Edition. I think you rode her in the Tats Tiara in Brisbane. Yes, I did, and and I, I wasn't booked to ride her that day, John. What actually happened, Jimmy Cassidy, I was a regular pilot. He used to ride her all the time, and Jimmy had a fall. I think it might have been at Eagle Farm or Doombin, mm. and um, the trainer put me on the horse. I, I picked up the ride that day, then uh, she went around in another 1,400 and uh, a couple of weeks later, and she, she didn't perform over those distances, and I rode her in two 1,400s. Yeah, exactly. You got yeah, on very exactly. well with John Hawkes, for whom you won some nice stakes races. Mac Rosa won a toy show quality. Cohort won a satellite stakes. Confiscate won a Frederick Clissold. John Hawkes later invited you to become his stable jockey in Brisbane, and you accepted the offer. Yeah, John was very, very good to me. He had the three jockeys there at the time. He had uh, Larry and... Darren as well, Rodney Quinn, myself. I was kind of third on the list of getting the rides, but he would uh, give me rides whenever he could. And like I appreciate all the the good horses I rode for him and I won a few good races for him. Then uh, I was talking in the jockey's room with John about um, my my dream was always to go to Hong Kong. And um, I said to Johnny after a, a Saturday meeting at Warwick Farm, I think it was, I said, how can I get to be a lead jockey in Sydney? He said, Johnny, you can't. He said that the, the, the jockey, the calibre of jockeys in Sydney now uh, were outstanding. We had Darren, we had Kevin Moses, Shane Dye, Mick Dittman, Wayne Harris. The, the list went on. Mm. And you had to be a leading jockey to get into Hong Kong. So that's when John asked me or said to me, if you look, if you want to try and win a premiership, go up to Brisbane and uh, then you might be able to apply from Hong Kong there. So I went up there for the one year and I, I just um, – 
yeah, I just didn't really love Brisbane at that time. Mm. Um, so then I spent one year in Brisbane. Then I come back after one year. I think I run fourth on the premiership up there. Um, and then I come back to Sydney. And then from then I went to Mauritius for the next five years after that on and off. Mm. It was John Hawkes who provided you with one of the biggest thrills of your career when he put you on octagonal in a barrier trial on one occasion. You won the trial and you've had great dinner party material ever since. Was he the best horse you have ever sat on? I believe so. Um, I can still remember it to the second when I was uh, when I was booked to ride him. I remember Steve Halliwell, I think it was, or uh, Steve, Steve was managing me for a little while and he had a tipping service and Ray Murray, he had to stop, uh, stop him managing me. So I'm not sure if he got me on him or uh, Wayne Kerwick got me on him. Mm. Um, but anyway, they got me on him in the trial and when I was told I was riding in the trial, I didn't sleep for the next two or three nights, mm. um, you know, just because you were so excited to ride the best horse in, in Australia at that time. And um, I remember cantering into the barrier, John, and he, he was an a complete professional and uh, Darren would know more than me. Um, but when he walked into the barriers, John, I still remember his head was straight. He looked straight. He didn't look sideways. And it was like you were riding this big Lamborghini. He was such a nice horse, very well balanced. And um, my, my whole thing was just to get him around in the trial safely, not to get him in trouble or click heels or get mm. him galloped on or anything like that. And he just gave me a beautiful ride. Never, never ever forget it. No, and he was all business, wasn't he? Oh, he was a professional. He's probably him, and I think I, I think I remember I take around, I took around Dr. Grace once or twice. Mm. Those two horses had the exactly same temperament. Yeah, they were just really professional horses and push button horses. They were superstars to run. I'll, I've never, never ever forget it. Yeah, you rode Dr. Grace twice, uh, oh, unplaced. A couple of Group Two races for Doc Chapman, and yep. wasn't he a good sort, Dr. Grace? What a thoroughbred specimen he was. Yeah, he was. I think he ended up in the – did he end up with Johnny Hawks after Doc Chapman had him? John, I'm not too sure. I thought Johnny Hawks had him at one stage as well. I don't recall Late in that. His career. Yeah, I'm, mm. I'm pretty sure. I'm not 100%, but I just got this gut feeling that I, Johnny Hawks had him as well for a little bit. Yeah, yeah but he was a lovely black horse. Um, and Doc Chapman, what a character Doc Chapman was to ride for. He'd give you some funny instructions sometimes, the old Doc, <laughs> but uh, he was a superstar. <laughs> he was. How did you attain the job of stable jockey for Don Barchiger in Singapore? Okay, what actually, how that eventuated, John? I, uh, to get into Singapore back in the early days, I think it was around 96 or 97, you had to be in the top 10 in Sydney to apply to get into Singapore. Mm. And when I was having the big run in, uh, not a big run, but a good run in Sydney, and I, I eventually crept into the top 10, I got into the 10th spot or the 9th spot, and I applied for a visiting jockey's licence in Singapore at that time. I went over for a few weekends. Then I, I, I applied for a one-year licence and they didn't give it to me, so then I returned back. But mm. I rode for Donny Barchika around that 96, 97 time mm. and I had a few rides for him. And so when I returned to Sydney and Brisbane and uh, Mauritius after that, um, his stable jockey at that time was uh, Eddie Wilkinson, then Craig Carmody. Well, Craig mm. Carmody retired mm. from riding and Craig um, mentioned my name and uh, Donnie said, yeah, yeah, Johnny rode for me before. So Don contacted me to come to Singapore and I, mm. I went up there as his stable jockey and I, I rode 
for him and the son for 18 years as stable jockey. Oh, wonderful association and almost a record-breaking one. You made a statement very early in the piece, didn't you? You won the Group 1 Singapore Derby on Hello and Goodbye for a New Zealand trainer called Bruce Marsh. I think it was Bruce's first winner up there. It was. It was, and I... Um yeah, it was Bruce's first winner, and he only just got the horse from uh, Douglas Dragon maybe about eight weeks prior to winning the derby. Mm. And, um, yeah, Bruce, that was his very first winner, and uh, I had a lot of success for Bruce after that as well. And, uh, he, yeah, it was probably unbelievable for him to win the derby in his first year. I, I remember Hello and Goodbye went straight to the front and uh, was on a bit of a damp track that day, and it I think it won by three or four lengths, and that was my first Group 1 win. You won the Cranji Mile in 2005 on a horse called Really Good. That's a prestigious race in Singapore. Yeah, the, the Derby Cranji Mile um, is probably their, their two biggest one, John, um, and I, I won that for Donnie Barchik, and I um, also won it later on uh, down the track for Laurie Laxon on a horse called Waikato. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was good I, um, and really good. He was a lovely little horse too and, um, yeah, that was another good thrill as well. You won a derby for the second time a few years later on Clint, trained by another expat Aussie in Cliff Brown. Yeah, Cliff Brown. Um, I didn't know Cliff prior to coming to Singapore and uh, he, he came up there and he was really quite close with Don Barchica. Uh, they were quite good friends and, um then I started to ride for Cliff, and uh, Cliff was very good to me. I rode a lot of good races for Cliff, and uh, Clint was a class three horse, so he wasn't really well fancied in the derby, mm. um, and there was a horse in the race called Better Than Ever that had won 10 in a row or something like that, and he was the mm. favourite. And um, so prior to the race, we all thought Better Than Ever was going to be the derby winner, and uh, I drew 16 gate on him, I, I if I can recall, and uh, I got out to the one out, one back, or three pairs back, one off the fence, and um, just got lucky there and uh, yeah, he gave me my second derby win so I was really mm. uh, happy about that. You won a QE2 Cup, another famous race in Singapore. Yeah, the QE2, that was for old Dr Yo, a marvellous local trainer, quite a funny character and um, that was on a horse called Restored mm. and uh, yeah, so that was a, it was a nice thrill that day as well, John. Is it fair to say that half of your career winners came in Singapore? Yeah, I, th I think I um, totaled up about 1,400 and I think about 640 of them were in Singapore. Mm. Um, and, and I'm quite hopeless at keeping records. I, I, I didn't keep a record. I've lost it of my apprenticeship winners and uh, my Malaysian winners and Mauritius winners. But, uh, yeah, around about 1,400 or up in probably 640 was um, in uh, Singapore, which is probably the most. You had a bizarre experience in the middle of 2021 when you had to take time off for three significant reasons. Your dad was seriously ill in Sydney. You hadn't seen your daughter Madison for some time because of COVID travel restrictions. And you also wanted to seek an opinion about a nagging shoulder problem that you'd been battling with. Now, this is quite bizarre Good old social media came into play. And the next thing, you're reading about a retirement you hadn't announced. Yeah, it was kind of um, when I was in Singapore and um, 
and I, I had I couldn't get on a horse eventually. I, I'd done a rotator cuff in my shoulder many years ago, and I'd come back to um, to haunt me later on. So when I was trying to get legged up on a horse, I couldn't even lift my left arm up or my right arm. No, left arm it was to actually um, grab hold of the reins to get on the horse. So the COVID hit, and eventually I thought I'll come back to Australia and get it looked at. And so I, I come back to Australia and uh, got that, had a look at there. And uh, then I seen the news that um, I was retired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, John, <laughs> about 18 months prior to that, as we mentioned in the introduction, you went for your routine medical clearance uh, for the renewal of your riding licence. They found a lump on your neck, which they thought was a cyst. You obviously had further scans and you were devastated to learn uh, that you had thyroid cancer. And all of this happened during the COVID border closure. Uh, I can't imagine the sort of uh, impact it all had on you. You wanted to get to Sydney for surgery and you couldn't for quite some time. Yeah, well, uh, they picked up the, um, the the lump in my throat come up about November the year before and then it would go down and it would come up again then I spoke to a few doctors who I used to play a bit of golf with. They said, oh, Johnny, it's just a cyst. Don't worry about it, but get an X-ray on it. So when I went to do my medical, the the, the lump had uh, returned, and then uh, they they sent me to another doctor specialist, a uh, head and neck surgeon, to have a look at it. When they scanned it, they found the cancer on the thyroid. Mm. So that was about January. So I was going backwards and forwards to the doctors in Singapore, um, weighing up my options. And um, the the doc, I had no insurance for hospitalisation in Singapore for an operation. So the doctor advised me to actually go back to my home country where I had family because um, I was in Singapore by myself and uh, seek seek uh, another opinion back in Australia. So I was booked to fly back in March. And that's when the COVID hit and they shut down all the borders. Mm. We, I couldn't get back home. So I, I stayed back in Singapore. We had the two or three months off where we were, had no racing. Then, uh, then the borders opened with the quarantine um, facility then. So I come back and done the two weeks quarantine in Sydney. And I went and seen uh, um, the doctor at the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse, um, Dr. Jonathan Clark. And he scanned it. Um, and looked at it again. He said, mate, we're going to whip you in straight away and pull that thyroid out and uh, you'll be right as rain afterwards. So um, the next day he, he admitted me to the Prince Albert Hospital, uh, the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse Hospital and um, took the, took my thyroid out, John. Yeah, and you've had no further problems. Uh, the biggest impact, of course, was on your weight. The removal of the thyroid sent your weight into a spiral and that was the beginning of the end. And you were 51 years old when you finally yeah. quit the saddle. But, John, you'd yeah, had a, a great little... run, hadn't you? I mean, you look back, as sad as it was having to give it away, uh, you look back on a wonderfully satisfying career. Had you been two or three kilos lighter, I'm sure you would have been riding to 55 or 6. Yeah, maybe, John, but I, I, I honestly felt in my heart um, it was like a, a lot of things come together that finished my career. And I I'm, I look back now and I think myself, I'm so lucky. I only had four or five race falls in my whole life. My first, The worst fall I had was a broken collarbone. Mm. Um, so that was the worst injury I suffered in 37 years of race rides. Amazing. Uh, 
yeah, mm. and to just come out with, uh, you know, the thyroid problem, my weight increased and um, COVID had hit. I couldn't see my daughter. My dad passed away. It was just like a big funnel effect to say, Johnny, it's time for you to stop and do something else, and that's how it ended. Madison, or Maddie, as you call her, is your one and only. She's 15, yeah. she lives in Sydney, and she's very special to you. Yeah, she's um, she yeah, she's my um, I, I don't know what how, how can I call her, but um, I love her to death. As all dads love their daughters, and uh, she's actually in, uh, she lives at Hope Island with the mother, and um, she's mother's remarried again. And uh, I see my daughter every couple of weeks now. She comes down and uh, stays with me at Palm Beach, and um, she's at the teenage years now. I just got to try and get her through the sixteen to twenty mark and try and keep her on the right track there, John. But she's got a good little head on her shoulders, and. Um, mm. Yeah, so the next couple of years is uh, just educating her and trying to guide her the right way, but I love her to death. I think I said Maddie lives in Sydney. That's incorrect. She's on Hope Island, which is where? Between Brisbane and the Gold Coast? Yeah, it's about yeah halfway between Brisbane and the Gold Coast, John. So um, yeah, she's uh, she's doing really well. She's doing well at school. She's got a little job now. She uh, works there, so she comes down and sees me, and uh, we cook a pasta together every now and then. So it's great. <laughs> Good on you, mate. Well, Johnny Powell, I've enjoyed every minute of our chat. It's been a, a pleasure to enlighten younger listeners about your talents as a jockey and the achievements they brought you. Older listeners, of course, need no reminding. They remember, as I do, that you more than held your own in a generation of great jockeys at home and abroad. Thanks for joining us on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Thanks so much, John. Great to talk to you. Many Australian trainers have tried their horses on Pride's Racing Cube and have given the product a tick of approval. These small but powerful extruded cubes provide the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses finish their races off while promoting gut health. Racing Cube set recipe formulation means the same premium quality proteins and essential amino acids are used in every batch produced. Racing Cube's profile and digestibility allows you to feed approximately two to three kilos less per day than similar raw grain rations. It's salt-free to help reduce irritation if you've got a horse prone to stomach ulcers. Pride's Racing Cube is available in the popular 25 kilo bag, in bulk bags, or straight into the silo if you prefer, giving you quality equine nutrition at an economical price. Talk to your local rep about Racing Cube, another winner from the Pride's Easy Feed Stable. Trainers of thoroughbreds, standardbreds, and performance horses are giving it the thumbs up all around the nation.